The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. My path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Now, tonight... You're going to have to buckle your seatbelts. We're, as we say here in Texas, we're fixing to get into some good stuff. Now, if you didn't think there was anything odd about what I just said, you are from Texas. <laughs> and you haven't been out. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can get ready, focused, and uh, confess any sin we need to. and Make sure we're ready to study. And then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we have a salvation that's based on grace. And that grace means that there are no strings attached, there's no hidden clauses, there's no ifs, ands, or buts, there's no uh, work involved on our behalf that Jesus Christ did it all. And with this magnificent salvation, we also have a new life, a new spiritual life that is rich and full and that you've given us your spirit who indwells us and who fills us and teaches us your word. You've given us a complete canon of scripture. and We just have so much that so many believers throughout history have never had. And today, Father, we live in a time when there's such a wealth of understanding of the word, such a richness in theology and doctrine. Father, we just thank you for all of this and pray that we might not take these things lightly, but that we might be uh, grateful for all that we have and that it might uh, spur us on to even a greater diligence in our own spiritual life. We pray that tonight as we study your word that it might strengthen us and encourage us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Hebrews chapter 6 and we've gone through about 95% of what is considered one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture. But actually, like a lot of so-called difficult passages in Scripture... Once you start really looking at the details of the text and the words and everything else, you realize that it's not all that difficult to begin with. But one of the problems we run into is people always want to seem to, to take their theological framework and then try to ram-cram and jam it into a passage instead of letting the passage speak for itself and interpret it on its own. So let's just pick up our context. Hebrews 6, one, we enter into... The beginning of the warning section, the exhortation section actually began back in 511, but we began to, to uh, transition into the warning section in uh, verse 1. Therefore, drawing a conclusion, let us press on to maturity. This is a corrected translation. Let us press on to maturity by leaving the foundational teachings about Christ and by not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Every time I read that lately, I keep thinking, how many times have you heard a preacher say, let's press on to maturity by not teaching the basics anymore? You know, there's a, you know, you go too many places, they don't even get to the basics anymore. They haven't got to nursery school. They're still trying to figure out where, where the diapers are. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, let's just leave the basics and press on to maturity. Verse 2, uh, verse 1 ended, let's pick up that context. Leave, not leaving again, uh, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God of the doctrine of baptisms, that refers to both Jewish and Christian, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do. What, what is the this? Let's get our focus right back into what's going on here. He says, this we will do. What is that? Pressing on. 
What's the problem? The problem is he's writing to a group of Jewish believers that have been growing and maturing, and now due to the pressure from uh, hostility from other Jews, from Orthodox Jews, from Pharisees, they're still living in, in, in Israel and Jerusalem in, the, in Judea uh, before, in the probably early 60s, five, six years before the uh, Jewish revolt, and they're ready to just cave in, and they, some of them have already, as we'll see, already departed from the truth. They are going back into Judaism. And so what the writer says here, under, recognize, verse 3 is such a short verse, but we must recognize what it's saying. And this, that is pressing on, we will do if God permits. Now the reason I, I'm stressing that is because we immediately go into this next verse in verse 4 that says, for it is impossible... For those who were, and then we get this list of characteristics, all of which describe a believer. And, and what he is saying, just to get the main thought of verse 4, for it is in, impossible, and you have to skip all the way down to verse 6 to pick up the rest of the thought, unless you've got an NASB, and then they threw the impossible down into, into uh, verse 6. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Now, that sounds in the English as if it is making an, a, it's stating a universal principle that it's impossible for anyone anywhere to renew them again to repentance. But I pointed out last time that nothing with God is impossible. You see, that's, we have to understand this context. He is saying, let us press on to maturity. We can do that if God permits. But aside from God permitting and God allowing us, extending us the grace to recover from the morass of carnality, then under most circumstances you're not going to see anybody recover. Once somebody takes a swan dive into uh, their sin nature and they just start swimming in and splashing around as much as they want to, it is extremely rare for recovery to take place. That is what he's talking about in this passage. That's the main idea. So in verse 4, we covered this last time. It's impossible for those who were once enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God, verse 5, and the powers of the age to come, and have fallen away. Now let's look at that list. Once been enlightened, they've tasted the heavenly gift, made partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come, and have fallen away. Now, if you use a New King James Version or King James like I have up here, it translates the last description as a conditional clause, if they have fallen away. But there's no conditional clause in the original at all. It is simply one more aorist participle piled up on top of the others. And in the Greek, what you have is a construction where you have an article. Whenever you have these kinds of, these are called relative uh, relative uh, participles, where they're used like a relative pronoun, that when you have one, it has, it, it's a participle with, a, with an article. And you can have one article that modifies or controls or governs as, you know, five, six, seven uh, participles. They're all linked with and, this and this and this and this and this, but that one article at the front controls all of them. So you've got a whole list of the same thing. It's, there's no if that slips in there. It is clearly stating the fact that there is a group that has been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come, and they have fallen away. They've already fallen away. They have already departed from the truth. And we're going to take some time to study that a little more and what that means in a minute. And what we have here with each of these participles are aorist participles, which means the uh, action, if there's a temporal sense here, it would precede the verb, but it's primarily talking about them as this group who has done this. It's already happened, and they have fallen away. That's the bottom clause. And it's interesting, there's no variation. You move from, you have aorist passive participles, aorist middle participles. Some of the aorist uh, participles in here are uh, 
what they call deponent verbs, which means they're passive in form. So you parse them that way, but they're active in meaning. So you can't make anything of it other than when it comes to have fallen away, it's emphasizing the fact that it is due to their volition that they have fallen away. It is the subject that performs the action, and they are the ones who have fallen away, whereas in your other ones where they're passive and middle voices, they're receiving that action uh, at salvation from God. So that last participle indicates that the action of their volition to depart from grace. So we come to, let's just go to verse 6. Verse 6, and they and fall away. I have run a line through if they, because that's not present in the original. They fall away, and then I put in brackets the main clause, the main thought, which goes back to verse 4, just so we don't lose it. It's impossible... And then I added the phrase, for us. Now, in a minute, I'm going to show you why I added that phrase, for us. It's, you've got to come up with a subject there somewhere. It's, it's impossible for God to renew them to, again to repentance. Well, with God, all things are possible. And there's the recognition in verse 3 that if God permits, so God does permit a recovery. So the only thing that we can pick up from the context of the book of Hebrews is that again and again believers are what mandated in the book of Ephesians uh, book of Hebrews to encourage one another again and again to love and good deeds Hebrews chapter 10 to encourage one another to stimulate one another that at some point it may be impossible for us to say anything, do anything that's going to have any impact on someone we know, love, care about who just has turned their back on Scripture, exercising negative volition, and swimming in a pool of carnality. And remember that pool of carnality can manifest itself in one of two ways. The person who is a successful business person or a successful student or a successful worker, engineer, scholar, academic, someone who uh, marries well and has children and seems to have a wonderful life and be successful in terms of finances can be just as carnal and human good as the street kid, the gutter punk, down uh, living under a bridge somewhere. Carnality manifests itself both in terms of morality Remember, the Pharisees were very moral, but they were not spiritual. And uh, it can manifest itself in immorality as well. Now, the last description of this believer, or this group of believers, is that they have fallen away. And I want to focus on that verb a minute. You have up on the chart, it's parapipto. And it is a compound verb uh, based on the prepos uh, prepositional prefix para plus the main verb pipto. Now, what I want you to watch here is that that main verb uh, pipto and how that's going to uh, work itself out as we go through this. But what we're going to see is that this this idea of para pipto means simply to fall aside, to fall away, to err, to stray, to lapse in their spirituality. It's only used this one time in all of Scripture, and it indicates that they have uh, fallen away from the truth or abandoned the truth. So you have parapipto, to the side of, to fall away to the side, and then you also have another compound that we'll see in a few minutes in Galatians 5.4. You have the use of ekpipto, these various compounds, and ekpipto means to fall from something. Now, what we've seen here is this theme of falling away or the danger of falling away that runs all the way through Hebrews. For example, Hebrews 3.6, we read, But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are, what, what's that next word? If, third class condition, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So there's that warning that we might not hold fast, in which case you would fall away. 
It's not a loss of salvation, though, because these are believers. Hebrews 3.14, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. If we don't hold on to it, we fall away. Hebrews 10.23-25 through 25 references this. Let us hold fast, again, that same concept, holding on to the truth, holding on to our spiritual life, persevering as we advance and enduring in times of testing. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So there's an emphasis here that within the body of Christ, believer to believer, there's going to be encouragement to go forward, to live a spiritual life. We get together with friends, and they're going through a difficult time. We remind them of promises. We remind them of doctrinal principles. All that's part of the process. But there are times when we, and we've all gone through this, we've got friends and family members who, who just, they just can't seem to get it together spiritually. They can't, that never quite becomes a priority. It's the only time they ever seem to turn toward God or go to Bible class is when, uh, when they're going through some serious discipline. And as soon as they get things straightened out, then they're not interested anymore. And this is the warning that the writer of Hebrews is saying is don't play with carnality in your life because there can be some dangerous extended consequences. You can become so carnal in your regression spiritually that you possibly could reach a point of no return where God just lets you go and you end up in the sin unto death. Hebrews 10:35 through 37 is another passage. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. That was their problem, is they were willing to just give up their Christianity and go back to Judaism. Do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Forget a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul is no pleasure in him, for, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. This is a great passage for believers to hold on to a great promise. We are not of those who draw back to perdition. That is not uh, talking uh, about necessarily about those who are lost, that is, unbelievers, but it is talking about those who are actively moving forward. Saving the soul is often an idiom in the New Testament. The use of the word uh, suke for soul and follows a, a Hebrew uh, idiom, uh, saving the life. And there's several passages back in uh, the Old Testament where that's what it refers to, just saving the life. Uh, somebody's life was saved or their life was almost lost in a particular situation. And so it is, uh, it's not necessarily a spiritual term here, uh, saving the soul. It's not talking about why we might say, well, is their soul saved? Are they going to go to heaven? That's not the idiom. The idiom is deliverance, uh, not losing your life, or in this case, believe to the deliverance of the soul is the idea of post-salvation Faith rest drill, trusting God to experience the fullness, the richness, the uh, full life that God has for us. Jesus said, I didn't come like a thief to steal and destroy, but to give you life and to give it abundantly. That's the concept here, is the abundant life for the soul. Now, when we talk about falling away, there's some other passages that describe believers who do fall away. See, that's a big debate out there among some theologians as to whether or not a, and they'll use terms like true believer, genuine believer, and other terms that the Bible never uses. The Bible never modifies believer with an adjective. The Bible never talks about true believers and false believers. The Bible never talks about genuine believers and, and false believers. It never never mentions that. There's no biblical support for that. They're just those who believe in Christ and those who don't. 
And so you have examples, though, of those who are believers who fail and fail miserably and stay failures until they die and they die the sin and the death. And that happens, and there's a real warning here. Somebody asked me the other day, said, uh, and of course they're not here. Nobody's ever here when I answer their questions. Uh, somebody said, okay, I, I grew up Catholic, I got a Catholic, Roman Catholic background, and there's always this incentive to be obedient and to be moral because I might not get saved. I might get sent to purgatory. I might have to, all these things might happen to me. There's this, just this load of guilt that motivates you. And said, if, if what you're teaching is all about grace and that Christ did it all, I don't do anything, I just accept it, what's to keep me from just going out and living an immoral, wretched, horrible life and just doing whatever I want to and just saying, okay, I'm saved, uh, so what? And this was a real issue that was faced by the reformers, and by the reformers I'm talking about Martin Luther, John Calvin, uh, Ulrich Zwingli, uh, others who were uh, fighting the good fight to to reform the church back to the Bible, uh, which is what the Protestant Reformation was all about, and the core doctrine was over justification by faith. And when at the very beginning of the Reformation, Calvin, Luther agreed completely on the whole concept of justification by faith alone, that when you put your faith alone in Christ, his righteousness is imputed to the unbeliever, and at that instant that the unbeliever receives the imputation of Christ's righteousness, God declares them righteous, and it's on the basis of Christ's imputed righteousness that we're justified. God looks at us and says, I see righteousness, I declare you justified, you are justified. But the reaction from the Catholic Church was, well, what do we have to, to control immorality now if this grace thing is true? And that put tremendous pressure on uh, the Protestant reformers because they had to answer this question. It has to do with the question of motivation to live the Christian life. What's the motivation to live the Christian life? Fear that you're going to lose your salvation? Or, as they responded, gratitude to God because of all that he had done for you. Now, the unfortunate thing is, in the history and development of Calvinistic thought, you ended up developing a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. Now, there's some different views on perseverance by the saints, but if you look at most of the creeds that came out of Calvinism, the worst expression of perseverance by the saints is the idea that if you are truly saved, then you will persevere in obedience. There can be no, that you may sin, you may become carnal for a short time, but there's no falling away. That can't happen. If you fall away, you weren't really saved to begin with. And that's ju- that was just another way of dealing with this whole uh, issue that the Roman Catholics were dealing with, it, which is why I have said for the last 20 years that lordship salvation, that's where this, what this becomes a part of is lordship salvation, that lordship salvation is a return to Rome. John MacArthur, who is a pastor of a large church out in Southern California and the foremost writer and perhaps a speaker on the issue of lordship salvation, wrote, really came out with this in his first book some I don't know, almost 20 years ago now, called The Gospel According to Jesus. And you won't see it in the second edition. He responded to some, I don't know if it was mine or somebody else's, but I did publish a book review on it. Uh, But in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which we went over Sunday morning, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And the word there in the Greek is pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, pistis. And he said pistis, and if you had to read the footnote, and in the footnote he said pistis means faithful. Not a one-time decision, trust in Christ, but faithful over a period of time. And that's the, that primarily is the, or that's the primary meaning of the Greek word pistos, O-S, not I-S, although I-S sometimes does mean faithful, but it doesn't mean that in, in those passages. And if you retranslate Ephesians 2, 8, 9, putting in MacArthur's recommended change translation, then it, mean, then it says, for by grace you have been saved through faithfulness. You get that? All of a sudden you slipped perseverance in there. If you're, if you're not faithful, 
then you weren't really saved to begin with. And that is just as Roman Catholic as it can be. And when you push these issues out all the way to their extreme, then you can't be sure of your salvation. In fact, uh, when there was a local bookstore owner, I think the name of that bookstore was Living Vine, in Irving, Texas, and he tried to, he was generating book sales, but he tried to get good authors who were in Dallas to come and do a thing for pastors in his bookstore, and he moved the racks back and set up a bunch of chairs and invited uh, John MacArthur to come and speak to a group of pastors, and John MacArthur stood right there, and right there in the front row looking right up at him were Robbie Dean and Tommy Ice. And after he got through with his presentation, I don't know, one of us raised our hand and said, are you sure you're saved? And he said, well, I'm about 99.8% sure. See, he can't have full assurance of salvation because he may possibly, conceivably, turn his back on Jesus sometime in the future, which would indicate that he wasn't fully, truly saved. And so for them, falling away means not that you lose your salvation, but you never had it to begin with. That uh, MacArthur will say, and others in the Lordship camp will say, you can have a faith in Jesus that is not saving. And you cannot demonstrate that from the Scriptures. So, But this is prevalent. It's everywhere. If you haven't run into it, maybe you got your head in a, sand, in a hole somewhere like an ostrich. But it's everywhere. So we have to look at this. Galatians 5.4 You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Now, see, there are some people on the other end of the spectrum who are called Arminians. Uh, they're not Armenians. They are Arminians. Arminians are followers of James or Jacobus Arminius, who was a Dutch Reformed Calvinist who didn't agree with Calvin, and his followers were challenged in a, a church court in uh, Dort in 16, I think it was 1617, and that's where you get the five points of Actually, it was originally the five points of the Arminians or the five points of the Remonstrants, as they were called, and then it was re responded to in, re in a reaction, in my opinion, by the five points of Calvinism. And um, the Arminians believe that you can lose your salvation. See, they don't believe that they, they have a very shallow view of God and a very shallow view of what happens in salvation, a very shallow view of sin. And so they believe you can lose your salvation. They'll take passages like that, this and uh, the, the Hebrews 6 passages and say, see, these are folks that lose their salvation. But let's take, let's take a minute and just observe what's going on in Galatians 5.4. You have become estranged from Christ. Now, who's the you? That's one of the most important things you can do in Bible studies, try to figure out who the you's and the we's and the they's are. And the you here is referring to the same group of people that he has been talking to all the way down the line in this book of Galatians. And he is talking to them as believers, not as unbelievers. He says, you... Uh, he, he just, in the in previous verse, in 5.1, he says, Stand fast, therefore... In the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And and I'm going to supply the you because we don't usually put that in, in second person plural imperatives in English. We just says we just translate it, do not be entangled, but he's saying, and you do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And that's exactly what is happening to them because they're being sucked in by these legalists. And he gets, says in verse 3, he says, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you all become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised, he's a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. So what's he saying here? The background of this is that Paul went to Galatia. And in this, I believe it was Southern Galatian view, and as he went to these cities, he taught the gospel. And there were... Uh, hundreds, maybe more, that got saved. Learned that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus came, died on the cross as a substitute for their sins, and that by trusting in Him and Him alone, they could have eternal salvation. And some of these were Jews, because Paul always went to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. But after Paul left and went on to the next town, 
a group of Judaizers came in behind him. Now, these were, uh, some of them may have been true believers, saved believers. Uh, they, they were uh, regenerate. Some may not have been, but they believed that Christianity meant, was, they, they hadn't come to understand the distinction between uh, Israel the Old Testament and the church, that this is a new baby now. The church was given birth to on the day of Pentecost and that there's a new uh, critter in the world called a church-age believer that's neither Jew nor Greek. That's why Paul emphasizes that in Galatians uh, chapter 3, that there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, uh, bond or free, because we're all one in the body of Christ. This is a new entity now, the body of Christ. But what these Judaizers were saying was if you really want to have the full gospel, the full blessings, and have, the, have everything that, that you think you're going to get, then you have to get circumcised and come in under both the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenant. Remember, circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, uh, not the Mosaic covenant. So they've got to enter into, they've got to proselyte, uh, become a proselyte, as it were, to Judaism. So they're introducing... Uh, He's, they're introducing works. That's why when Paul comes along and in Galatians at the very first chapter, he says, if anyone teaches you a gospel other than the one I've taught you, let him be accursed. Even if I or an angel from heaven give you another gospel, let him be accursed. And he's uh, using rather strong language. He's saying, let them go to hell if they teach any other gospel. So the first chapter is straightening them out on the gospel because the Judaizers were muddying up the waters, adding works to the gospel. But when he gets into the third chapter, he's showing that they not only muddied up the water on the gospel part, but they were muddying up the water on the sanctification part. And so the key verse here is in Galatians 3.3, he says, Are you so foolish... Now, the you there is a second person plural. And to whom does the you refer? The same you that he's talking to in Galatians 5. So if the you at the beginning of the book is talking to a group of believers, and he says, are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? Does that mean they were saved? Yeah, that means they were regenerate. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect? brought to completion, made mature by the flesh. See, that's what they were trying to do is through the observance of the Mosaic Law. And there's kind of a little uh, humor there, a little irony or sarcasm for Paul because he's, he's digging at this flesh circumcision, cutting off the flesh whole thing. So there's a little, uh, uh, little tongue-in-cheek humor, so to speak, there in uh, verse 3. Well, when we come to the passage that we're talking about here, the you is talking about this group of believers that have begun in the Spirit, but they're trying to mature through morality, through obedience to the law, through the observance of circumcision. So he is saying you have become estranged from Christ because now that you're, you've factored works into the equation you fragmented, you fractured you, your relationship with God, your intimacy with God is gone. You've, you, you're not in fellowship anymore. You've broken fellowship, not because of a sin, but because you've got bad doctrine. See, that's the same thing that John's really dealing with in 1 John chapter 1. It wasn't because they had sinned so much as they had bad doctrine. If your doctrine isn't the same as the apostles, you're out of fellowship. Isn't that interesting? See, we live in a world today that doesn't take doctrine very seriously. So we can have all kinds of doctrine because God loves all of us, and he certainly wouldn't, wouldn't do anything like, like cut us off of fellowship just because we believe the wrong thing. But that's not what the Bible says. So what Paul is saying is you've become estranged from Christ because you've let works into the system. You've forgotten about grace. He says you who attempt to be justified by law... And what we have here in, uh, in the Greek is a, what's called a tendential present tense. It indicates this idea that they are attempting, they're trying to be justified by law. So who's the group that's trying to be justified by law? It's a group of believers. And now they've gotten this bad information, this false doctrine from the Judaizers, and they're going back and they're trying to redo their justification before God. So Paul says, you have fallen from grace, pipto, 
Remember the other word was parapipto? And here we have ekpipto, just another form of the same, same verb. They have departed from grace. Grace is the high standard of Christianity. And when you hit, enter works into the system, you fall from grace. You have left that high standard and you've jumped off the Empire State Building and you've splattered yourself all over the sidewalk, as it were. You have fallen from grace. And that's what he's talking about. It's not that you've lost your salvation. It's that you have fallen into legalism and you've fallen into a spirituality by works, by morality uh, system, and you're not going anywhere because you're trying to do it yourself rather than trusting God. There's another passage. Before I leave this one, there's a couple other things that I could point out to indicate that these are believers. If you look a little further down, it says that... um, that they were running well. Verse 7, you ran well. Well, they couldn't run at all if they hadn't been allowed to start, which is regeneration. So that indicates they were saved. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So they started well, and then somebody tripped them up. A little leaven leavens the whole, the whole lump. Verse 13, uh, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. He calls them brethren. He says that they've been called to liberty, but they're going to use their liberty as an opportunity for the flesh in contrast of serving one another. Okay, let's go to the next one. Philippians 3. Philippians 3. For many walk. Now, the term walking, when you get into the Scripture, is a metaphor for living the Christian life. Walking by the Spirit, walking in truth, walking. Every day you see this, the word walk is a metaphor for the Christian life. For many walk, of whom I told you often, now tell you even weekend, let me rephrase that. Walking is a metaphor for living. For many live, many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Well, who's he talking about here in Philippians 3.18. Let's pick up a little, a little context. Verse 17, he says, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, many what? Many, uh, many believers. That's the context. Uh, many, believe, uh, many believers walk, and they're enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. By th- these images here, the metaphors of their God is their belly is that they are worshiping their own lusts. They're worshiping their own desires, and whose glory is their shame. What they're glorying in, what they think is so great, what their greatest accomplishments are in life is, ironically, truly a shame to them. Believers who have right priorities and right values look at what some of these people are so proud of and they're embarrassed for them because they realize uh, that it has no eternal value whatsoever and it is nothing more than self-centeredness. They set their mind on earthly things rather than heavenly things. So these are our believers. So we have those who fall from grace in the Galatian epistle, enemies of the cross in Philippians, and then in Revelation 3, 15, and 16, we have the lukewarm believer. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. How many times have we had this cold or hot phrase? Okay, a little emphasis there. Because you're neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, I'm going to try to retrain all of you from traditionally poor teaching on this metaphor. So now you all are going to run me out of the room. There are many people who have taught that what this refers to is is cold is uh, people who are cold to the spiritual life and cold to God. What an American idiom. And hot is those who are on fire for Jesus. That comes out of 19th century revivalism. Okay, This doesn't have anything to do with understanding the metaphor that's here. It's based on the fact that this is the last letter in the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. 
and it's written to Laodicea. And Laodicea didn't have any natural springs right there, so they piped the, the water in. They had hot springs, and they had cold water coming down from the mountains. And you see, cold water and hot water are both usable. On a day like we had today, a good glass of ice, ice water tastes really good. On a hot day, a good glass of, I mean, a cup of hot coffee or hot tea tastes really good. Hot and cold are usable. Lukewarm isn't usable. See, this isn't, this isn't, the, the cold doesn't represent a rebellious believer and the hot a non-rebellious believer because lukewarm is the rebellious believer. Okay? The hot and the cold represent usable. Cold water was great. That's what the Laodiceans wanted. They were piping down this, this uh, cold water from the mountains and they wanted hot water from the spring so that they could wash clothes and wash dishes and have hot water. And they had hot and cold, because of this, they had hot and cold running water in their homes. But lukewarm water, if it stayed in those channels too long, it became lukewarm and it wasn't usable. And if you drink lukewarm water, it makes you rather bilious. That's the imagery that's here. Uh, Jesus is saying, I know your works as believers that you are neither cold nor hot. You're not usable. I could wish you were cold or hot. See, if cold meant rebellious, that they were cold towards doctrine or negative volition, then why would Jesus say, I wish you were cold, I wish you were negative It doesn't make any sense. See, they're lukewarm. They're not usable because they're out of fellowship, because it's a carnal church. And this is the same congregation that Jesus is going to say, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. See, the issue was fellowship. And so they were not usable because they were carnal and out of fellowship. And so then Jesus says, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth and just puke you out on the sidewalk. And that's his metaphor. That's how the Lord refers to believers who have fallen from grace, who are enemies of the cross, who have followed this whole pattern of carnality. Uh, Revelation 2, verse 4 and 5 has the same idea with the Ephesian church. Remember, this was the first one we studied a long time ago in our study on Revelation, uh, where at the end of that evaluation report, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Pipto. See, we've gone from parapipto to ekpipto, and now we've got pipto. So it's all the same concept that this this is a congregation of believers, but they have fallen from their first love, and they are challenged because of this. It's not just that they're not oh they're not they they were ninety percent motivated before, and they've fallen a little bit. They slipped. They're eighty five percent now, or or seventy percent, or maybe sixty percent. No, they have fallen. It's a complete reversal. They have gone from from being motivated by the love for the Lord to where that's not the motivation anymore. And the challenge is not just to rev up your engines a little more, but to repent, metanoia, to change your thinking. And this idea of repentance is really a loaded term in the Bible. Sometimes I think we do it a little injustice by saying it's simply changing your mind. Because in a lot of passages like this one, it's not. if we just say change your mind, we don't capture it. It is a change of approach to life. And it, it's not a one-shot thing. You don't walk the aisle and, and, and repent and, and say that, okay, I'm never going to do that again. Sometimes it, the repentance may take, it, it's an inner conviction and desire to change, and that may take years in the experience of our Christian life. But a person who is not conscious of sin in their life that they need to deal with, and willingness to deal with it, even though they fail 50 times a day, uh, is different from the, the Christian who just says, you know, I'm just going to keep failing, so to heck with it, it's okay. Let me just, as long as I just confessing, keep confessing my sins, it's okay. But see, that person isn't going anywhere. The goal in the Christian life isn't to be able to confess your sins. The goal in the Christian life is having confessed your sins is to abide in Christ and walk by the Spirit so you can grow and mature. That's the goal in the Christian life. Confession is simply the way to stay in fellowship, continue abiding, and keep walking.
So these in, these in the Ephesian church have fallen, and the solution is to repent and do like they did at the beginning, or else there will be divine discipline. I will come to you rapidly, is the sense of the idiom here in the Greek, and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Twice that is mentioned there in those passages. So <clears throat> those who fall away are those are those who do not abide in Christ and thus do not walk in the Spirit. I want to pull all that together in the next week or two, going to John 15, Galatians 5, and Ephesians 4, because this is really the background to understand what's, what this writer in Hebrews is talking about. And it just isn't as clearly understood and taught as much anymore as it was at one time. So... Those who fall away are the same group as those who don't abide in Christ in John 15 or don't walk by the Spirit in Galatians 5. And this can, this can apply, these, these who fall away in Hebrews 6 here, this can apply to immature believers who spend most of their time out of fellowship because they may never quite get it kicked into gear and start learning to abide and to walk. Or it can refer to more mature believers who reverse course in their spiritual growth, go into carnality, give up their Christian beliefs, give up in the struggle against the sin nature, the flesh, uh, the devil, the world, and depart sound doctrine and give up on the biblical mechanics for spiritual growth. And therefore, because they give that all up, it is virtually impossible to renew them again to a change because they have just given up. And they have, like the prodigal son, they've decided to go wallow with pigs and not live in the light of the royal family that they belong to. So we have to remember, I think this is something that's so lost today, that spiritual growth is not based on morality. I was talking with somebody the other day, in fact, I think it was a young pastor, and I said, people have to understand spiritual spirituality isn't the same as morality. There's a lot of moral unbelievers. There are, that, that's the essence of a lot of, of, a lot of cults. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormon, this is all based on works. I, one time I worked for a family said, you know, we always like to have, get Jehovah's Witnesses to do carpentry work and you know, plumbing and electrical work around the house because they're trying to earn their way to heaven, so they always do a better job than anybody else. <laughs> See, everybody's trying to work their way to heaven, and they're very moral, but that's not spirituality. Not that spirituality is immoral, it's just that they're different. Morality is a category that can apply to a believer or an unbeliever. But spirituality refers to the dynamics of the life of the Christian based on the power of God the Holy Spirit. We have a supernatural way of life that is uh, empowered by a, the third member, the third person of the Trinity. And that's the only way it can work. We can't do it on our own. We can't pull ourselves up by our pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, which is what a lot of Christians do. That's what happens. You go to ninety eight percent of the churches in this city and you will get nice messages on Sunday morning that really don't have anything wrong with them. And you may sit there and go, Well, I listened to them and it didn't sound bad. Well, what they were telling you to do is to go read your Bible and to go pray and to go witness and do all these things you know you're supposed to do, but they never teach you to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's just human good because they don't have the mechanics of the spiritual life down. They don't understand that you're either walking by the Spirit or you're walking by the flesh, and the flesh can produce a lot of good, and the flesh can produce a lot of more, and you can read your Bible in the flesh, and you can pray in the flesh, and you can witness in the flesh, and you can do all kinds of things for Jesus in the flesh, and it doesn't last, and it doesn't contribute to your spiritual life. It's not, uh, it doesn't have any eternal value. It's just wood, hay, and straw. So, what's the solution? Well, as we go through this, we realize that the, that the parallel admonition 
in terms of, of renewing people and challenging them is indicated in Hebrews 3.13, which we saw earlier, exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. This goes back to what I was saying earlier, that the uh, adding the phrase, it is impossible for us to renew them again to repentance. Because in the application of the principle of Hebrews 3.13, where we're to encourage one another daily, sometimes that doesn't work. But with God, all things are possible, and God may permit us, 6.3, to press on to the high ground of spiritual maturity. So let's conclude. No, we're not quite there yet. Five key principles. I could go till 11.30, okay? Anybody with me? We won't do that. No sin is unknown by the omniscience of God. God's omniscience knows every single sin you and I will ever ever commit at any time. We never surprise God. We never shock God. You may surprise yourself, shock your spouse, scare your children, but it doesn't surprise, shock, or scare God. He knew about it in eternity past. Second principle, therefore... No sin is overlooked by the justice of God. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he could pay the price for every sin because God the Father knew every sin. And when he wrote the indictment that he, and the list of debts that he nails to the cross, it's got everyone there. He didn't miss one. You're not going to wake up tomorrow and commit some sin that, oops, God forgot to put it there. No sin there is too bad for the grace of God. Every sin is equally bad in terms of its violation of God's righteous standard. There's no sin that's any worse. It's interesting if you study the history of different cultures that everybody's got their different set of bad sins. And as you go through, just you look at the history of, of uh, America, and you go back to the 1700s, and you ask people, What's, what are the worst things you could do? Well... I don't know. They'd come up with their list. You get into the 1800s, and number one thing is, in some areas of the country, was to own a slave. And if you owned a slave, you just couldn't be spiritual. You couldn't have anything to do with God. I mean, that was the worst sin you could commit. Then you get into early 19, early 20th century, and you, you, if you had evil, evil demon rum cross your lips, then then you couldn't commit any worse sin. I ran across a survey several years ago done by Christianity Today in 1950-51, which was very near the beginning of that publication. They did a survey, and it was like 95% of Christian survey believed it was a sin to drink wine. In 1982 or 83, very early 80s, they had the same survey. 95% of, of Christian surveys said it was not a sin to drink wine. Man, that is a major shift. That is a 180 done in, by evangelicals in America, or either that or they went down to the local tavern the second time and interviewed all the Christians down there. But uh, it, it really was a shift. So, so, so cultures culturally we define sin differently. So you get into the uh, 1990s or into the early 21st century, and and of course a great sin is. Uh, uh, according to what, who's uh, the, the mayor of uh, New York, Michael Bloomberg, is I read the other day is committing 21 million dollars of his personal fortune to uh, to to fund stop smoking campaigns. I mean, smoking is the big number one or number two evil sin. So every generation, every culture has their different nasty sins. These things are all relative. That's the point I'm making. They're relative. You may think, well, smoking's not so bad. I can't wait to get out of here and have a good cigar. And the person across the room thinks that if you light up a cigar, you're going to hell. But see, everybody has their personal tastes and personal pleasures and, and uh, trends of their sin nature. But for God, all sin is equally evil. And no sin is too bad for the grace of God to deal with. Because grace is going to solve the problem. Fourth, no sin is too strong for the omnipotence of God. 
So no sin is unknown by the omniscience of God. No sin is overlooked by the justice of God. No sin is too bad for the grace of God. No sin is too strong for the omnipotence of God. And no sin is too harsh not to be overcome by the love of God. The love of God is going to find a way to solve the sin problem. However, there are consequences to sin, even in the life of the believer. Even when you operate on grace, there are consequences to sin. There are the natural consequences which come as a result of reaping what you sow. And then there's additional consequences that come from divine discipline. And what we read here is a, a, an extremely serious warning that you can dabble in carnality to such a degree and start wallowing in the cesspool of your own sin to the point where God just leaves you to your own negative volition to reap all the consequences you can right to the point of the sin unto death, and there won't be a recovery. It's not that he can't. It's not that you can't. It's that you just won't. It's you're just going to get to a point of no return and apart from the grace of God, apart from God permitting, there will not be a recovery. And that's the point. That's why this is a warning. It is serious that believers have to pay attention to this, not to take their spiritual life lightly. Now let's go on to the rest of the verse. Uh, if this if these, this group of believers who have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again for a reason. Because, and what we have here is not a strong causal statement. We have two, uh, actually we have two participles, anastarao and paradigmatizo. And these two participles are causal participles. And they express the fact of why it's impossible to renew them again to repentance because they crucify again for themselves pure arrogance. They have gotten out of fellowship. Once you're out of fellowship, operating on the sin nature, it's all about me, it's not about God, and it's all arrogance. And you get into the full function of the arrogant skill, self-absorption, self-indulgence, self-deception, self Uh, deification, self-justification, all of those things work together. And we have, uh, since they, because they crucify again with reference to themselves, the Son of God, and put Him to shame or disgrace Him. And I think I wouldn't separate the two uh, translations. I would say since they crucify with reference to themselves again and disgrace the Son of God. Those two participles link together. They, with reference to themselves, they crucify again and publicly disgrace the Son of God. Now, what does that mean? What that means is that because of the fact that they have turned their back now on this grace salvation that is theirs in Jesus Christ, and they've gone back to realign themselves with the Pharisees who nailed him to the cross and to align himself with those who crucified Jesus, that they are, in essence, re-crucifying Jesus by their very actions. Not that they are going back and nailing him to the cross, but it's they're, they're committing the same act that the Pharisees committed when they rejected the offer of salvation and nailed him to the cross. So what they are doing is they're, by rejecting him and publicly leaving the Christian community and going back into Judaism, it is the same kind of act that caused the crucifixion to begin with, a rejection of Jesus' claims to be Messiah, and it is disgraceful and an embarrassment to the cause of Christ and it should embarrass them. That's what he is saying here at the end of this uh, at the end of this passage. And then we get an illustration. I wanted to get here 40 minutes ago. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. 
This is clearly an illustration of judgment. And what kind of judgment is this? You see, the key to understand this is that first word, for. Because that tells us that it's explaining what went before. Now, if what went before relates to believers, then this illustration of judgment and blessing relates to believers. This is not a judgment related to the lake of fire. So we're not going to talk about the great white throne judgment here, and it doesn't talk about the judgment at the end of the tribulation, but it is related to both the judgment seat of Christ and temporal discipline, temporal judgment. So we'll get into this next time because this imagery of planting and fruit-bearing and burning the crop is something that run. These are motifs that run through several uh, metaphors that are used in the Scripture for the Christian life. The uh, Jesus, when he talks about being the vine in John chapter 15, fruit production, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, you have uh, burning also back in John 15. And so this is some important material we need to go through to reinforce our understanding of the mechanics for the Christian life and how these things all fit together. So we'll crank into that starting next week. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be strengthened and encouraged by your word, to be warned of the dangers of just living for ourselves and and playing with sin and and thinking that, oh, I'll just confess it later. But, Father, we realize that, that your grace has provided everything for us and we need not treat it lightly or take it lightly because the issues are serious and significant and impact not only our lives here on earth now, but also our future position, privilege, responsibility in the kingdom. So, Father, we pray that we would be responsive to what the Holy Spirit teaches us tonight. We pray this in Christ's name.